Psalm 14 begins with a pretty abrupt statement that is not politically correct. Many of you know Psalm 14, verse 1. And it really, what it's tapping into is what is now a common term, and that is worldview. And what Psalm 14 does is it presents to us a worldview. There are many worldviews, but this is a specific worldview, a perspective of the world. And I was thinking about worldview and thinking about, I've never enjoyed putting puzzles together. Um, My mom likes to put puzzles together. But I got on researched, and there is a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. It'll also give you the top ten puzzles and makers of puzzles. I didn't know there was such an interest. But think about trying to put together a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle without being able to look at the picture on the front of the box. You pick up a single piece. It's sort of burnt orange-yellow. And you have no idea if that belongs to a sunset or a hot air balloon, or a pumpkin, or Garfield. You have no idea, right? One is a picture of of a reality, a sunset. The other is a, a fictional character. And worldview is a lot like that. If you have the wrong worldview, even sincerely, you end up with a fictional cat. Or if you have an appropriate worldview, which the box allows you to say, this is where all these pieces, every breath, every minute lived, every day lived, Every week, and as they pass by, oh, that's, that's how that connects together. Then you look back at the box to get the big picture. That's what a person's worldview does. It helps us construct an understanding of reality. Without a bigger picture, the smaller pieces don't make sense. They're all sort of disconnected and in a box. With the big picture, oh, we understand now where this piece of suffering fits where this piece of obeying my parents fits, where this piece of, a, of an eternity, this, this sort of, as Ecclesiastes says, there's eternity in our hearts, the sense of something bigger. Oh, that's where that piece fits. This is true of life. A worldview simply defined is a framework from which we view reality and make sense of this world. Here are a few questions worldviews try to answer. How did we get here? Why are we here? What does it mean to be human? What is wrong with the world? Right? And connected to that, why is there so much evil and so much brokenness and so much suffering? And probably personally, why do I suffer? Can we fix what is wrong? And if so, how? And of course, one of the big questions that worldview tries to answer is what happens after this? We see people dying. We see they reach a certain age. We're amazed when a lady celebrates her 107th birthday. And yet in light of eternity, that's not a very long time. So what happens after this? Two warnings about worldview. Our worldview is not necessarily what we ascribe to on paper. You don't just sign off on a doctrinal statement and that automatically, by default, becomes your worldview. And secondly, worldviews can be completely wrong. We can build an entire structure on a wrong worldview. I remember, I don't know why this thought came back to me while studying Psalm 14, but I remember thinking, I remember standing in the kitchen. It's one of my earliest memories as a child and believing that I was always a child at that age. 
Like, I don't know how old I would have been to even think this. So I was always seven. I had always been a child and I'm always going to be seven and I'm always going to be a child. And my dad was always dad. Like, I didn't have a sense of eternity, but this is just how in my little childish worldview, dad got to be a dad in this life. I got to be his child. And this is how things would just perpetually move forward. I'll always be seven. Isn't that a great, simple, innocent view of the world? I wish, you know, I wish I knew then what I know now. And I think I would have enjoyed seven a lot more. Right. And I'm like, I want to be the dad. I want to go to work. How foolish. Right. You know, uh, you know, I want to be like him. And then you look back, you're like, what was I thinking? I don't want to be like that. And now and I thought he was old. That was he was 27. (laughs) Childish. I didn't understand birth or aging, didn't comprehend eternity. But it was my worldview. Worldviews fill in. As we learn more, Psalm 14 introduces us to the worldview of the fool. Look at verse one. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's his worldview. So the title of our sermon this morning, the fool's worldview and God's response. We're just going to split this up. Two quick sections. The first one is the fool's motto. And the second one is God's response. A motto, the fool's motto, there is no God, is a short sentence or phrase chosen to represent the beliefs of an individual, a family or an institution. Here is the fool's motto of life. If you would, he's already answering one or two of those worldview questions. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool, it's an interesting designation. The fool is not synonymous with the jester of the court or the class clown. It's not what he's talking about. This is not the uninformed moron or the willful F student. Rather, it is someone who makes a clear moral decision for evil. This fool actually has deeds or actions that accompany his mindset. Matter of fact, someone who makes this clear moral decision is seen in the latter part of verse one. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The fact that this designation carries moral rather than just intellectual qualities is seen in Isaiah 32, verse six. Let me just read this for the fool speaks folly and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. The fool is actually one who exploits or oppresses other people. It's a moral quality. So that means this, that a fool may be a highly intelligent person. The fool may be wealthy, even an effective leader. The fool may hold advanced degrees in education, and he or she may even be a professor at a university. The fool may be effective at winning debates and even be more winsome and charming and have more favor with the people than any of his or her opponents. The fool can be beautiful, fun loving. You may even find yourself siding with the fool, desiring to be in their company and receiving their praise. Folly for the Israelites related to morality, not intellect. Their choices reflect a functional atheism. The fool says in his heart, 
There is no God. So basically, he answers these first two questions. How did I get here? And why am I here? And the fool says, it doesn't matter. There's no God. Do you know that people say things in their hearts they would never say out loud? That's probably already been true of you today. Maybe somebody, honestly, you've been a true believer for 20 years and you're pulling up into the parking lot and you're like, why am I even here? It's a good question, though. It's a good question. You wouldn't walk in and find me and go, why am I even here this morning? No, you say that in your heart. But do you know the sustained whispers that echo in your heart reveal what you truly believe? Those sustained statements, those sustained beliefs, that's your true worldview. So that leads us to a question. What does your heart say when you don't think anyone can hear it? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Okay, so we understand now what the fool is. Right? There's a moral degeneration, not just an intellectual handicap. There is a moral degeneration. And he says something in his heart. In Hebrew, the word heart refers to the center of the person. His mind, his will, his emotions. It is the center of moral and ethical decision making. That is the heart of a person. Jeremiah 17.9 says that our hearts are deceived And extremely sick. That's the heart. That's the center of who we are. Do you know that that God through Jesus Christ offers a pure heart? Purity in the internal, central part of who you are. The fool says in his heart, in his mind, in his will, in his emotions, his affections, there is no God. That means there's no responsibility and no accountability. And folks, this explains why some people refuse to accept that a child in the womb is a life. Because in their heart, they say no God. Or if they do believe in God, they fear shame or value reputation or love convenience more than they love the life of the child. And the answer to this is, though fool says in his heart, I will deem what is best for my life regardless of what God says about it. It stood out, and some of my children made the same application as we were recently going out onto Cocoa Beach. We saw all these little areas sort of fenced off with a sign. And, of course, this is where the sea turtles came up and laid their eggs. And they're protected, these eggs. And the same thought happened in several of my family, and we thought, you can face up to a civil penalty of up to $25,000 or a criminal penalty of up to $100,000 and up to a year in imprisonment for harming a turtle egg. And yet you can kill a child. See, the fool is one who is morally depraved. They say in their heart, there is no God. Therefore, there is no moral compass to direct you. This explains why thousands, even hundreds of thousands, gather together today and go through religious movements, but they fail to worship. Why? Because worship is a matter of the what? Of the heart, of our mind. 
and our will and our affections. This is what Deuteronomy 4.29 says. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if, conditional, you search after Him with all your heart. That's when you find the Lord. Jesus responded to the potential trap of religious leaders, their lawyers, and they were saying, which is the greatest commandment? They didn't care what the greatest commandment was. They had already been breaking the commandments. What they cared about was entrapping him so they could kill him. Murder was on their mind. And Jesus sniffs out the trap and he says this. This is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Notice how the description in verse 1 unfolds in Psalm 14. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. You know, this begins to answer a second worldview question. What is wrong with the world? Why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much rebellion? The answer is that humanity sinned against God and subjected the whole world to a curse. The word corrupt, if you see that in Psalm 14, verse 1, indicates the inner effects, the internal effects of the fool's view of God. There is no God that leads to internal corruption. The word means to spoil or ruin. It's an interesting picture. We rot from the inside out. That is what is happening in the mind, will, and emotions of those who reject God. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things, Jesus says, come from within. They defile a person. That's what that word in Psalm 14 means, corrupt. It's an internal corruption. Romans 121 says this. It's interesting because Romans 121 leaves no room for the fool who says there's no God. Listen to what it says. For although they knew God, interesting, they did know him before they professed there's no God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. See, that's the problem. Nor did they give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, the fool's response determines whether his heart will become more and more darkened through internal corruption or whether it will be released or saved from that corruption. This begins to tease out another worldview question, and it's this. Can we fix what is wrong? And if so, how? Well, there's another term, abominable deeds in verse one. The corruption that exists in the heart inevitably begins to do what? We know this. You can look at this in relationships in your own life. The corruption, if not stemmed or purified within our own hearts, begins to inevitably exert its impurity on others. In exploitation or oppression or racism That corruption inevitably comes out and affects the community. That's what the abominable deeds. It goes from the heart, mind, will, and emotion, to the internal corruption of that heart, now to actual deeds, not just deeds that harm the individual, but they're abominable and that it is now exerted on other people. 
The phrase stresses the effects of the perpetrator's actions against other people. The the universality of this problem is also indicated in verse 1, and it's the word none. Look at verse 1 again. There is none who does good. Why? Because sin has infected and therefore affects everyone. If that phrase, there is none who does good, sounds familiar, it's because it was read from Romans 3 this morning. And it is repeated twice in Psalm 14 and twice in Psalm 53, which is basically an identical psalm, except for the term Yahweh used in Psalm 14. The term Elohim is used for God, for the title of deity in Psalm 53. Look at the statement again in verse 1. There is none who does good. This is God's view looking down. So in case we want to sort of insert ourselves as the grand exception, this is what God sees looking down on humanity. There is none who does good. Look at verse two, because you have this sort of this this poetic Godward view looking down. Look at verse two. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. That's. This divine scrutiny of humanity. It's a scene reminiscent of the flood and the Tower of Babel narrative where God looks down. Now, we know that God is everywhere all the time. So what does this phrase try? What does this phrase communicate to us about God? Do you know, as we try to piece together our worldview, even a Christian worldview, there's a lot of answers that are difficult to to sort of kind of bring into alignment One of those is suffering. One of those is evil. Added to the one on evil is evil against children or the suffering of children. Why do children get cancer? Why are children kidnapped? These are very difficult pieces in that in that sort of puzzle box. What this is saying, this kind of poetic view when God looks down or when it's talking about the flood, which was a universal judgment, or when it's talking about the Tower of Babel, which affected the universality of humanity, it's talking about God deliberately not overlooking sin, but about him asserting himself purposefully into the events of humanity. Let me read the sort of two verses from the flood narrative. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Do you know that God sees South Denver right now? He sees it. He sees it with the ability to act at any moment. Do you know that God sees Mogadishu, Somalia. You know that God sees Nairobi, Kenya. He sees New York City. He saw everything that happened in every major city last night at one in the morning. He sees it. One of the difficult puzzle pieces in the box is why doesn't he act right away? Why doesn't he do something? We've, we've cried out to him for years. Why doesn't he? Okay, we don't have that answer. We don't have that why. But we do have enough about who God is and his ways and his works to trust him. 
This is letting you know that no one is getting away with evil. Listen to the Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel narrative. And the Lord came down to see the city. It's not like God is as he is pictured sitting on a throne far off and he's got to actually visit, get a plane ticket and sort of visit the city and do a survey. This is simply letting you know that he is close and observing everything. He came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And then he acted in his own time and in his own way. Now, let me ask you this. So what does the Lord look for when he looks down? Or as he's here and he sees all of our hearts. Keep reading Psalm 14 to see if there are any who understand. Who seek after God, verse three, this is his conclusion, his assessment. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Similar to Sodom and Gomorrah, there is none. There is no one righteous enough to be shielded from divine judgment. Note these words, all together, none. And the phrase, not even one. This is what God is doing. In, in terms of currency, humanity is bankrupt when it comes to moral currency. What is God's conclusion when he sets his gaze on us? We have all gone our own way. It's like Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have turned astray. We have all gone our own way. That's what's wrong in the world. This is a worldview. Can we fix what is wrong? And the answer is yes. And this begins to set the narrative for a rescuer, redeemer, savior. And here's the answer of that as we move into the second section you know, as we as we sort of jump to the end, yes, God has provided a way to forgive us of our sin. And have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who heat up my. By the way, notice first. This is a question. Verse four. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread. Vivid imagery. And do not call upon the Lord. Verse five. There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. This question has three parts. Have they no knowledge? Fools lack the foundational knowledge of Yahweh that would lead them to relate to him properly. No, they know God. It's been made clear to them, Romans 1. So that they are, and it says this in both Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 3, so that they are without excuse. The reason there is no one giving excuses to God is because what may be known of God has been made plain to them. It's clear to them. Romans 1.18, the actual knowledge, the true knowledge they have, the truth, they are suppressing is what Romans teaches. Look at the second part of the question. All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread. Okay, if you go back to verse 1, that corruption now is inevitably going to affect, infect other people. These are the abominable deeds. People who through a corrupt heart start to oppress others, start to mistreat others. Racism, anti-Semitism, violence, genocide, kidnapping, murder. Inward corruption not repented from will lead to the mistreatment, abuse and oppression of other people. The prophet Micah made a similar complaint with equally vivid imagery. Listen to what the prophet Micah said in chapter three, verse one. 
Rather than just like eating God's people like bread, Micah says, you who hate the good and love the evil. Remember the fool? It's a moral decision. You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Remember, God looks down and this is what he sees. And not a single evil action is hidden from him. The New Testament description provides just as bleak of a portrait in Romans 1. This is how Paul sort of ends chapter 1. He says they're, they're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So even if they don't do everything that everybody else is doing, they sit there and they celebrate it. They applaud it. They watch it. They record it so they can watch it later again. The last part of the question in verse 4, and they do not call upon the Lord. And because they refuse to call upon the Lord, as Romans 10 says, that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But because they resist that one way to relate to God rightly, to be delivered and cleansed of that corruption, they remain enslaved to corruption. And that corruption bleeds over into abominable deeds. Look at verse five. There they are in great terror. Who? Who are in great terror? It's a great question. For God is with the generation of the righteous. I believe what this pictures is that the evildoers are in great terror because they know not enough about God to be fearful. They live in fear of him. They know and believe something to be true about God. And the reason I believe that is Romans 1 verse 18. Let me let me read this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes can namely meaning these are the ones that stand out his eternal power and divine nature. That's what they are in terror of. These have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So even though they are oppressing and mistreating others, they live in a sense of internal terror. Verse 6, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Isn't it interesting that the abominable deeds by proud and corrupt people are often done to the weakest and the most vulnerable. And in justice systems, it's those people that are most overlooked. They're the least helped. And so we need this reminder. Guess who's on their side? God is. And this is a hope for us, too, as we're trying to put these puzzle pieces together, that no matter what injustice is unleashed, we must remember that Yahweh is the safe shelter, the refuge 
of the faithful and that every person must give an account of themselves to the Lord. Now, really quick, as we bring this to a close, Paul quotes a lot of Psalm 14 in Romans chapter 3. That's why I had Joel read Romans 3 this morning. Really quick, what Paul does in Romans 3 is he is weaving together several Old Testament passages. In one section, he borrows from Romans or from Psalm verse 14. In, in the section, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, that's where he quotes Psalm 14. Two verses help us understand what Paul is getting at. Verse 9 of Romans 3, where Paul places all humanity under the power of sin. That's going to be a key a key understanding. They are under the power of sin, imprisoned, enslaved. And verse 20, where Paul's conclusion is that the way to fix that, because that's the problem, worldview, the way to fix it is not by keeping the law. Matter of fact, he says this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So in between those two incredible truths, all are guilty and the way to fix it is not law keeping. He quotes Psalm 14. These two points are vital if we are to appreciate the need for the gospel. Romans 3, 10 to 12 is taken from Psalm 14. And here's here's the point. We do not simply need a teacher to instruct us about how to keep the law better. We do not need a teacher to instruct us about how to correct our sin problem. If you just do A, B and C. You can correct this problem on your own. No, a matter of fact, Paul is quoting Psalm 14 to place us under the responsibility of sin, but to also show we are enslaved to its power. And then he says in Romans 3, you need a liberator. You need a rescuer, deliverer, redeemer, savior. You can't fix it on your own. You need someone to be sent And to do a work that you can't do. And his name is Jesus Christ. And in Christ, in in God's provision of this gift of grace, he will legally, these are legal terms in Romans 3. These are forensic terms. And in Christ, he says, you can't do this on your own by keeping the law, but in Christ, I will be the justifier. My demands for justice will be satisfied. My wrath against unrighteousness will be appeased. How? What laws should we keep? It's not about keeping the law. My justice is satisfied and my wrath is appeased in my son. That's what Romans 3 says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This is after he quotes Psalm 14. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Okay, why is this such good news? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received. How? By faith, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Look at the last verse of Psalm 14. Because Paul ends with a hopeful plea. Look at verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. 
When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Many believe that this psalm was written during the Babylonian captivity. So in a sense, that salvation had a temporary fulfillment when, when God delivered his people out of Babylon. But it pointed to something more. As a matter of fact, when, he, when he's crying out, this expresses a desire from the psalmist to see something happen. And that something is going to result in salvation, restoration, rejoicing, and gladness. Those are all terms used in verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. What's Zion? It is the geographical place where God's presence was symbolized most clearly. It is the hill on which Jerusalem is built. The center of divine rule, the dwelling of God, the seat of his authority, the very place from which deliverance would come. Look at verse 7 again. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, partially fulfilled when God delivered his people out of Babylonian captivity, but it anticipates a greater salvation coming out of Zion. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed for our sin just outside of Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha. Jesus was buried just outside of the old walls of Jerusalem. Jesus rose from the dead out of that tomb located just outside of the holy city. In closing, because our time is up, I want to read to you several verses that mention Zion. And I just want you to listen to these. You can close your Bibles, turn off your device, just listen to these. Romans 9.33, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Romans 11.26, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness. 1 Peter 2.6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In Revelation 14.1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. That's the rescue. That's the restoration. That's the deliverance. And I love how it ends. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad.